Welcome back to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director at Privacy International. This week, I'm back with Caitlin. And we'll, get, <laughs> and we'll get back, sorry, we'll get into our episode, which is a very interesting one on biometrics and counterterrorism. But first, we want to know a bit more about why you listen to the podcast. And it's important to us to know why. And like traditionally, what podcasters would do would be to steal data from all the platforms and mine the fuck out of the data so that they can understand you better than you know yourselves. We can't do that. And we don't do that. And we have this really strange thing called ethics that says that we shall not do that. Instead, we ask you to knowingly and willingly give us information as to what motivates you to listen to this. So we have set up a survey and we're going to give you the URL verbally, but it will also be attached to this podcast and all the platforms that you can click on. So here's the URL. You do HTTP colon backslash. HTTPS. HTTPS. Thank you. And all that other stuff that you do. Then it's pvcy.org slash TP survey. That is technology pill survey. So again, I'm going to repeat it again. It's pvcy.org slash TP survey. T-P-S-U-R-V-E-Y. And we would be very, 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 very grateful if you could just take a minute out and let us know how we can make this podcast even better. And we promise we will try and we're always going to innovate, uh, but it would be so much more interesting if we innovated based on your feedback. Cool. Okay. So let's move on. In this episode, we want to take a look at one of the biggest issues we face at the moment in privacy advocacy. And I say at the moment, but let's admit it's over the last 20 odd years now, which is counterterrorism. I'm going to feel really old in this podcast, in the sense... That's what I'm here for, to pop up and say, 9-11 happened when I was in primary school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and the fact that we are approaching the, if you can believe it, 20-year anniversary of 9-11, it does make me feel even more so old. Uh, because by the time 9-11 came around, I was already in the field of technology policy and human rights and privacy and surveillance for about four or five years. And 9-11 wasn't a watershed moment in the sense that that's when we started talking about counterterrorism. If you'd worked on encryption policy in the 1990s, you were getting beat over the head by the FBI and the Department of Justice and, and various interior ministries around the world about how terrorists were using encryption with impunity and something had to be done by it. But 9-11 certainly changed the speed at which technology was being thrown at complex problems and being deployed across the world with a fervor we'd never before seen. And that was definitely the case with biometrics. Before 9-11, there was a fascinatingly, amusingly critical discourse around biometrics. 
and mostly fueled by Steven Spielberg movies that everybody had been watching back when everybody watched the same movies. And that being Minority Report with the scene of Tom Cruise walking into the, into the gap and being recognized as the other person or the spider police robots that would go from room to room in a house that they were searching and scan everybody's eyeballs and move on to the next. That was how we understood biometrics as a social phenomenon. But when we saw biometrics deployed in the field, Generally, it was cops talking it up, but re- in reality, it failing left, right, and center. With the um, Tampa Bay Snooper Bowl being the infamous moment, which was uh, the what? Yeah, the Snooper Bowl. Like Tampa Bay was ho- hosting the Super Bowl back in, I think it was two thousand, and the Tampa Bay police had deployed facial recognition. Then the police chief was traveling across the country talking about how impressive the technology was. And lo and behold, the cops had actually stopped using it because it was so fraught to fail. Um, (laughs) But it, it generated this massive amount of debate as to whether or not biometrics were a good thing. And generally, it was treated as, nah, we probably shouldn't do this. But then Planes crash into buildings, governments start panicking, thinking, what must we do? And yeah, tech was the thing they took off the shelf. And now we have biometrics being deployed everywhere. So yeah, that's the general topic of this podcast. But fortunately, it's not just me talking about how old I am and Caitlin reminding us about how young she is uh, and me uh, moaning about back in my day, we didn't have these issues. But instead, we have far more expert people joining us today to talk us through these issues. So one of the fascinating people we've lined up to talk to you for this particular episode is Fanula Nyelain, who is the UN Special Rapporteur in the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms While Countering Terrorism. That's her long official title, but I think it's fine if we just call her the UN Special Rapporteur in Counter-Terror. Her office was established in the aftermath of 9-11 and provides global oversight at the intersection of human rights and counter-terrorism efforts. So precisely what we want to talk about today. So she's perfect. So the special rapporteur role is a voluntary one. And Fanula is a professor at Queen's University in Belfast and the University of Minnesota Law School in the US. And she didn't really go into the role of special rapporteur thinking all that much about technology. She came in from a legal perspective, but she said once she started, it became pretty clear that the use of tech under the heading or the guise of counter-terror, particularly the use of biometrics, was a real serious cause of concern all over the world. So we started by asking Fanula what exactly a UN Special Rapporteur actually is, <laughs> what a day in her life looks like. Special rapporteurs are independent experts. So even though we're selected through a political process that involves the vote of the Human Rights Council, we are in that sense elected from countries and I'm elected from Ireland. Once you're appointed, you're independent of government. So your goal is to be independent and to engage independently with governments. Each special rapporteur has broadly three sets of what we might call capacities rather than powers. The first is that we issue communications. And what that means is a person or a group that believes in the context of my mandate that they have suffered a serious human rights violation as a result of a counterterrorism, countering violent extremism or extremism measure can write to the mandate. There's an email address and can outline what they've experienced. And the mandate then can proceed based on 
evidence collection or the verification of data to raise an allegation letter with the government. And we have hundreds of such letters and given our limited resources, we make choices every day about which cases we engage on, but that's one mechanism. The second capacity is country visits where we go visit a country with the consent of the government. You arrive and you do an assessment of all of that state's counterterrorism measures. And that includes everything from visiting prisons, which For me, in the last couple of years, that's meant mostly interviewing jihadis and other people convicted in prisons to meeting with victims of terrorism, as well as then meeting with all of the government agencies that implement or oversee a government CT practice. And then finally, I issue thematic reports. These are one a year to the General Assembly and to the Human Rights Council. And those reports are intended to be an assessment of areas of law or areas of practice by states in counterterrorism that I think are particularly problematic and need to be addressed. So those are the capacities. Maybe the one final thing to say that the mandate that I hold does that no other special rapporteur does is I sit on something called the Global Counterterrorism Coordination Compact, which is a New York-based structure Its forerunner was created around 2005 in the aftermath of 9-11. And this is the structure that engages with states in the New York security space around their counterterrorism practices. This has always sounded to me one of the coolest and hardest jobs in the whole human rights world. And I can't even get my head around how hard it must be to, to hear the stories, having to travel to these extraordinary circumstances, and I mean extraordinary in the true definition of the term, like such as visiting jihadis in prisons in various parts of the world, and trying to navigate all the politics, all the legal. And I don't know how you as a human being are able to stay on top of all of these things and navigate, whether it's the law, whether it's extreme politics of counterterrorism law in any country around the world, and now the technology aspects. What got you to this point? I mean, I spent my life in Belfast, Northern Ireland, where counterterrorism and conflict were a daily part of the world I grew up in. And I went to law school through the worst of the conflict. And so a lot of it seems a little bit like Groundhog Day in a way that the work I do now is a continuation of the work I've done in Belfast for 30 years. But nonetheless, you are right. The global scale of it is enormously challenging. You know, I have a team that helps me, a very small team, two amazing legal advisors and a team in Geneva, two human rights officers who support me every day. And we're always overwhelmed. It's like a tsunami. I mean, if we just think about ongoing issues in the Sahel and Libya and Iraq and the humanitarian disaster that continues to unfold in northeast Syria and Iraq, I mean, all of those are the daily work, the mandate. So it's not easy. It's really hard. On the side of politics, I think you have to learn to become a diplomat. I was a law professor who did a lot of policy work before I became special rapporteur. And now I've learned, I suppose, a set of things about functioning in a highly political environment where a lot of the work I do is not public, where some of your best work and your best influence is through engaging privately with governments. But it's hard. We are in an enormously permissive environment for counterterrorism, evidenced, for example, by the law passed on Hong Kong, where 
essentially the translation of Hong Kong's protest and democracy movement into a terrorism threat by China illustrates, I suppose, the culture of abuse that exists around CT with very, very few restraints. So all of that is really challenging. And I, I, I think we just, we do a little bit every day. I, I don't tend to think too far out because I think you sort of have to keep your head down and keep going. My trial by fire was also in the post 9-11 environment where there was all the issues going on that you just described and it was on steroids after 9-11. And I was just this awkward person who wanted to talk about the role of technology and the role of data and the role of biometrics. And most people really couldn't care less because they were rightly focusing on detention without trial, torture and rendition and all the other horrible things that were going on with people. But then I actually worked with one of your predecessors as the mandate started to look at questions of technology, questions of data back in the 2009-2010 report from Martin, China. That's right. It was Martin. (laughs) Exactly. And so now you actually picked up the mandate to publish a report on biometrics. Why? My teenage children would tell you that they're the best tech people in our house, not their mother. (laughs) But two things really drove the mandate and me personally. One was that when I started doing country visits, and particularly because we engage significantly with the intelligence services and the police and the military, it became clear to me literally in my very first visits how much datafication was at the heart of how states were managing their counterterrorism practice. It was in a way an epiphany for me because that hadn't been as obvious to me as an academic working on issues outside of the kind of day-to-day work of talking to states about what they are doing. So one was just that practical kind of moment of recognizing ways data was playing this central role for states in managing CT. The second was I was seeing in the Security Council, and I've paid a lot of attention to governance in my work as Special Rapporteur, an increased turn in the regulatory work that the Security Council has been doing, their focus on data and their encouragement to states in particular to address the use of biometric data. And that pivotal moment actually came the year I became Special Rapporteur, which was UN Security Council Resolution 2396. And in that resolution, the Security Council decided, I mean, the paragraph is paragraph 15. It's indelible in my memory at this point. (laughs) Member states shall develop and implement systems to collect biometric data. So then again, I had this other kind of, you know, epiphany, Joycey and epiphany, where I thought, wow, here we have the UN Security Council mandating every state in the world under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter to collect biometric data. Oh, and by the way, there's no real reference to human rights in their requirements to do so. So it seemed to me like a license to human rights abuse. So so those were the, the moments. And, and I maybe should acknowledge I had a, a, an amazing legal advisor who is a tech person, and she was adamant that we as the mandate should address this issue. So I've leaned very heavily on my legal advisor to help me get this work done. When you hear the UN Security Council doing something with a resolution, you tend to think that there's like a war about to break out. And so why the hell are they mandating 
on behalf of the world, the creation of or the use of biometrics when traditionally this is either done, well, let's be honest, through colonial powers or through one would hope a democratic process where governments have to argue why they need to collect biometrics nationally and perhaps, well, as has often happened, at borders. Why is the UN Security Council getting involved in this at all to begin with? That was exactly my question. I mean, at a general level, I was coming into the role of Special Rapporteur really, I suppose, sensitized to the need to look at governance and really look at what the Security Council was up to. So my very first General Assembly report to the General Assembly focused on exactly this. What is the Security Council up to in this space and what's been happening in this space since 2001? And I think what I've really done fairly meticulously is actually chart this increasing role of the Security Council as what I've called a super legislature in CT generally. And the really important point here is CT is not like every other area because the Security Council isn't doing this in other areas. There's a certain degree of balance or understanding that the balance between what the Security Council should be doing and what is rightly left to states I think you see that more or less being maintained in other areas. But CT is the outlier. So that's the first thing is this is just unique to CT. And the second question is, why is it happening at that generic level? And the answer is, is because we've created a permissive environment for the Security Council here because we have no global definition of terrorism. What we have is a set of Security Council resolutions which say we're going to regulate terrorism and none of us will define it, which means we all get to define who our terrorist is at the national level. And because we all agree at a very generic level that terrorists are bad, then we're going to give ourselves all of these tools to manage that threat. And that's created an environment in which the rush to, for example, use biometric data in the CT space is one that happened, in my view, both in an unthinking and strategic way, meaning unthinkingly, these resolutions are negotiated in short order, no consultation, very little engagement with other states other than the 15 on the council, and even then the P5 play an outside role in deciding. So you have this sort of headlong rush into this, oh, let's pick up these tools, oh, and this happens to be a tool we'd like to use. But also, there are a number of states, I think, as we know, who've had long-term commitments to data collection. They govern by data collection. They use data to enable their often autocratic or rule of law diminishing modes of governance. And those states on the council have a clear interest in having the imprimatur of a Security Council resolution validating their use of data. So that's how it happens. And the problem, I think, is that we are not looking at that space enough and no one is calling it out except maybe a a lonely NGO and a lonely special rapporteur (laughs) saying this is an impingement on sovereignty. It's bad for human rights. It's bad for governance. You would not get this kind of biometric data system through most national parliaments in this way. But now you've just done it by fiat. And as somebody who has fought in a number of parliaments around these issues, particularly around biometrics, the reason why I like a parliamentary fight, the reason why I like a practical fight around these issues is because I can articulate how 
techno-solutionism that emerges around biometrics is all faulty, that in reality, this will not work the way you want it to work. So practically, this is going to be challenging. Or as you've just identified, the governance challenges around deploying grand biometric national scale systems, whether the law can overarch it or whether it can be regulated. It's just a nightmare in the making. Yet, particularly in democratic fights, I can articulate those things and almost skirt the human rights issue because it's hard. First of all, I'm not a human rights specialist like you are. And for me, I don't fight what's in the imagination of the despotic ruler who governs by data. I I don't fight that kind of entity because I I fight in the real world where that system doesn't work, that the, 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 the fear of their governance by data it isn't that it will be a perfect system. It will be that it's an imperfect system that crushes both people they want to crush and people that aren't intended by the system to crush and all the problems that arise from that. But I'm curious from the strict human rights concern, how do you approach the question of biometrics? The challenge is, do we frame it as a human rights issue? Or And I, I just want to say, I do think we have choices to make in framing that sometimes it's useful to frame it as a human rights issue. Sometimes it's more useful to frame it as a sort of a governance sovereignty issue, because not all states want to hear that human rights argument, but maybe more open to the governance argument. How do you fight it on a human rights ground? Well, I think the first thing, you you know, we start with some basic premises. Biometric data is sensitive and from that sort of question of sensitivity, it's specifically sensitive because it's so unique. It's so intrinsic to the dignity, to personhood, right? And in that way, you start from kind of connecting data, biometric data, to sort of individual personhood. And then you start to think about what the implications are, not just, I think, one of the places most people start in the sort of privacy realm, where there's an uh, sort of an obvious first port of call, which is the negative effects of the use of biometrics are around privacy. And I think that is a good place to start. But I think it's it's a sufficient but not necessary place to start from a human rights perspective, because you want to then understand how misuse of biometric data amplifies the negative impact on a range of rights, not just privacy, the right to work, the right to family life, the right to practice your religion freely, the right to fair trial. Like I think we have to kind of make the case for the, the way in which privacy functions as a gateway right. And when you use these data, there's just a broad set of implications. I think the other place that I think we want to make the human rights argument from is that negative human rights impact of the use of biometric data is going to be amplified in the cases of groups and persons who are already marginalized or discriminated against. I recall the report of my colleague Tendaya Chume, the Special Rapporteur on Racism to the General Assembly this fall, which focuses on the interrelationship between new technologies and race. And I think that report is extraordinary in amplifying the way in which that interface has been historically problematic and continues to perpetuate inequality for Black communities in multiple ways. So that's where I start, but it's this sense of both kind of locking the biometric data use to the sort of dignity and human personhood and thinking about it as both connected to privacy, but like bigger than privacy. 
I've been waiting for like 20 years for you to come along and start articulating these things. Because just to use some examples of my own work in this, where I've struggled, because people are looking to us and saying, just tell us from a privacy perspective, this is wrong, when there's so much more to it. And as you say, it's the intrinsicness to personhood. So like when working on refugee issues back in 2008 and 2009, looking at how UNHCR was deploying fingerprinting, when we noted to them that it wasn't working particularly well, there were some people who were saying, well, if fingerprinting doesn't work, why don't we just tag people? And I thought they meant just going back to the wristband idea. But no, they were saying, why don't we just inject under the skin? And at which point I, I had to articulate not only you're dehumanizing people by, you know, by penetrating their skin to put something underneath, but also at the time the research was indicating that that causes cancer or it could cause cancer. And the pragmatists at that point would nod their head saying, yeah, yeah, cancer, we don't want that. But, but the pragmatists would have no problem with the idea of, oh, let's tamper with people's dignity. And then similarly in the UK discourse, when we were talking about in the post 9-11 era, which type of biometric the government would use, we would raise the error rate issue around, say, fingerprints or facial recognition as a reason why the technology is not ready. And so the response from policymakers was first, well, why don't we try Iris because it's more accurate, but it's under a patent. So one company would have made too much money. So they decide not to. But then some parliamentarians said, well, we all know that DNA works. That's unique to the individual. So why don't you just move to the DNA level? And so if you don't lay boundaries around what's an acceptable solution in a society, we will seek the perfect, which is let's let's grab the DNA of everybody. And it's no surprise a couple of years later in the UK, at least, it was discovered that the police DNA database or the national DNA database had, I think, one quarter of the black population was on the database. Yeah. And so Without the human rights perspective weighing in on this, we're just we're, we're rudderless as we just go around asking, does technology work? Uh, can it be deployed? Who gains from it versus the, the question of personhood? So thank you. Well, I, I know I'm a latecomer to the conversation, but I do hope that the mandate's capacity to elevate this discussion and also maybe to, more than anything else, point out how much counterterrorism, security discourses are the edge of the knife here, that so much work is being done in this space that looks like it's exceptional on the argument that it only applies to terrorists. But in fact, given that the state gets to define whomever they like as a terrorist, and in fact, the solutions are a wholesale rather than retail, that my hope is that the mandate's work in this area is encouraging people to look really, really closely at CT to look at what's happening in the global spaces that are permissive. I'm so grateful we were able to get her time on this podcast because she's a giant. She's she's an intellectual giant. And also, we're just so impressed that the UN was wise enough to choose her for this role and the, and the way that she plays this role that is to again understand the UN special rapporteur after 9-11 was the role that would go to Guantanamo Bay and and meet with detainees and so this is a very important post and the fact that this issue is of such importance to somebody in that role shows how much biometrics and counterterrorism has become intertwined. I also think 
it's really great like that she has gotten so involved in the biometrics conversation and she's really picked it up and kind of ran with it and expanded on it because like it's so human and easy to kind of go in as a lawyer and be like think okay legal implications law things the things that I know and I'm interested in and comfortable with and she's just so impressive and cool and fascinating um particularly around the technology stuff yeah no she's awesome so we've had the international conversation now I wanted to talk a bit more specifically about places and individual moments in which biometrics have been deployed around the world and the first conversation we had was with Nina Tov Janagara who's a PhD at Stanford University who's been working with PI on examining the US's military application of biometrics in Iraq and Afghanistan after 9-11. The approach to biometrics was, some people call it a dragnet approach, right? So they were just trying to collect as much data as possible about people in the region. And the kind of objective of military commanders during these wars, you know, post-Cold War military engagements in general, the enemy isn't clear, right? It used to be during the Cold War, like we know who the bad guys are, right? That's our opponent. Now with terrorists, there's much more ambiguity about like who is actually terrorists, right? They're often living among people who have nothing to do with those political causes. So identification, right, being able to sort out the good guys and the bad guys became their objective. And they were under the impression that collecting data about everyone would make it easier to track who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. And I'm not being reductionist by like using those terms. That's like actually sometimes what they call them. It's really interesting because one of the classic examples used and this whole registration idea is like William the Conqueror in 1066, when he took over these isles, one of the first things he did was, was a registry of all the people and all the land. It's basically, he wanted that book that said, this is now what you own. But as you say, in the Cold War, it was different. You wanted a registry of all the people you were fighting against, and they were the ones with the furry hats. But now it's just, we don't know who these people are, so let's just go back to the William the Conqueror approach and just get everybody into a system. Yeah, it's a census approach, basically. I mean, there was a little bit of extra targeting around what's called a military-aged male, but even that is a very ambiguous category. So it's like a male in between the ages of 15 and 70, which is, or that looks like they're, you know, at least 15 years old. So, I mean, that is just such a large swath of the population and people were compulsorily um, registered. There's Stories or reports of people being pulled off of buses, out of mosques, uh, you know, going door to door just to collect this data. Do we know how many people ended up in the database? Yeah. So on ABIS, which is the Automated Biometric Identification System, they say they have 7.4 million identities and that around 3 million of these were collected in Iraq and over 2.5 million in Afghanistan. So most of the people in that database are Uh, citizens of one of these two countries. Like the population of London (laughs) in a biometric database. Yeah, uh, my husband is uh, from Denmark and their entire population is 5 million people. So um, it really does put it in perspective. And did the practice differ between Afghanistan and Iraq? So it started first in Iraq. That kind of laid the groundwork. And when the biometrics program was rolled out, it wasn't like 
they carefully planned what they were going to do and then implemented it, right? This is post 9-11. There's a lot of um, chaos. There's a lot of fear and there's a lot of military funding, right? So the U.S. was already using biometrics, but mostly for like personnel management, like getting into restricted facilities. And it's only after 9-11 that they start to use it for detecting people from outside of their community. And so it was first people who were detainees, later that expanded to people who were potentially going to uh, apply to working on the military base, locals. And then it got to the point where it was that dragnet. So by the time Afghanistan started, or at least the biometrics program in Afghanistan around 2010, that was already kind of the policy. So military commanders were encouraged to incorporate biometric data collection in any of their field engagements. So if you're going out for whatever reason to a village while you're there, you might as well register everyone. It's interesting how that back in 2001, 2002, 2003, I was tracking the deployment of registration in the U.S., of foreigners. They first started taking biometrics of everybody they had detained right after 9-11. And then they started requiring foreigners who live in the United States, and I know there's a US term for it, but even that term's changing, that come from certain countries. And then that expanded to people visiting the United States from those certain countries. And then eventually it morphed in 2004 to the US visit program, which is everybody who's coming to the United States, except for all oh, those damn Canadians who, who come in under some other regime. So that what starts as like a very targeted, there are bad people who we want to register to, this is just going to become common practice for administration of whether it's our borders or of the lands that we now own from our wars. That's just the story of biometrics, isn't it? Yeah, it's a classic mission creep. So what do we know, considering that mission creep, considering at one moment in time, it might've been somebody they detained or they took off a bus to it becoming institutionalized. What do we know about the accuracy of the data on the database? I mean, so one of the difficulties as an advocate or as a researcher is there's just a lot of opacity about what is in that database, right? So everything that we do know about it is like coming from oblique angles. That being said, there have been reports of people being, for example, um, denied entry to the United States, or sorry, a visa, because of some sort of entry in the database. They're not really sure why, and they aren't privy to that information, right? It's not your right to know why you've been denied. So there's the compilation of the database, which has like the identities, right, that are uh, tied to your fingerprint or iris data. And then there's also a watch list. They rely upon each other, but they're not exactly the same. So there's around 300,000 people on the biometrically enabled watch list. You know, it's presumably not just their biometrics. It's some other data that they have about you. But we have reason to question some of those sources of data. So, for example, um, went to Iraq and built the biometrics database. They digitized all the previous fingerprints from criminal records, which are, these are Saddam era records, right? So like, just because you were considered a criminal during that time, right? Are you a criminal or were you a dissident? Were you like a victim of a totalitarian regime? So, I mean, if we have reason to question some of those sources of data, then it's hard to to say that, you know, it's definitive. And even in some government documents that have been obtained through FOIA requests, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, they say that the ABIS database is not perfect, that there are false positives and not to rely upon that as you know a truth machine. But does the, the person working in the State Department reviewing a visa application and finds a match on the database, does, does that person actually know that they should not be relying on this data? 
most likely no, right? And also, I mean, say you're that bureaucrat who stamps the visa applications, it's probably not worth your time uh, to take the risk to question whether or not this information is credible. Oh my God, that is classic function creep and scope creep to the point where it just becomes so institutionalized, we no longer question. I don't know if you remember the story of uh, Brandon Mayfield, so he lived in Portland and he'd previously served in the US military. And then he left the military and he married a Muslim woman. He converted and he became a lawyer and started to represent suspected terrorists in Portland. And then in 2004, there was the Madrid bombings. And one of the bags on the trains didn't explode and they were able to lift a fingerprint or a partial mm -hmm. fingerprint from that bag. And the Spanish authorities sent that partial fingerprint around the world saying, hey, do you know who this person might be? And I think it was the Algerians responding saying, yeah, we got your person. And yet the American government also responded saying, yeah, we got your person. And they said, it's Brandon Mayfield. It has to be Brandon Mayfield. Look at this guy. He fits the profile. We have his fingerprint because he, he had the audacity to serve in the military. And he fits the profile because he converted to Islam. And look, he's associating himself with known terrorists. And they detained him. They were packaging him up, ready to send him to Spain. And they had senior FBI fingerprint specialists say, yeah, it's a 100% match. Bingo match was the term that was used. And all that time, the Algerians were saying, hey, hey, we got your guy over here. And the Spaniards were saying, yeah, don't worry, America, we don't need it. And yet they were just so focused on getting this. And so eventually they had to settle a, a case with them. But this is the shit that happens when we just automatically think that first that a partial fingerprint is a whole fingerprint, that an identity is a real identity, that a, somebody's profile is so clearly a slam dunk case. Bad things happen. Yep, certainly. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I can't say anything other than the fact that I agree. I mean, so 20 years on from the invasion, and this morphing, where are we now with this database? So these identities are allowed to be held in perpetuity as long as they're useful to fighting the war on terror. Which is a short-term war, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's just so many ambiguous statements there, right? So what is the scope of the war on terror and what does it mean to be useful? We have indications that it's still quite actively in use. So the European Council and the US government have made some data sharing agreements recently. And so, uh, and those were made uh, public through the European side. So we know that they're still sharing data because there's some initiatives here in Europe to catch foreign fighters. So European nationals who then go off uh, to fight in foreign wars. There's also been some reported cases where Terrorists were found in the middle of the United States, you know, living already, and they were caught through some sort of connection to the database. So we do know that they're still using it, and they don't seem to be pursuing any sorts of other routes. The ABIS database, so that's the Department of Defense's database, it is in communication also with DHS. So the Department of Homeland Security database includes those visa applicants, and then the FBI database. So that has the biometrics of people who have been accused of a crime. So all of these things kind of connect and link with one another, which gives them much more power. So that was a fascinating discussion about how 
essentially it is about mission creep and function creep and that once a system is made even if it has no point it will get integrated with other systems who that they also might not have a point but ultimately it leads to the building of an infrastructure that nobody shall ever question ever again and will become an authoritative source of truth about people and the world and just hearing her speak about that journey and having seen it to some degree it makes me think a lot about where we are now with covid we have to remember this moment in time as we're up close and in the middle of it we can see around us all the incompetency all the failure all the times whether it is the the video conferencing software we use that might crash or the incompetency of government and company responses to our needs but we have to know that unless we do some very careful things right now in 20 years time there'll be two people doing a podcast just blown away by how whatever we've developed in the next few years will become so ingrained in our society and i think i'm feeling that way around immunity passports or vaccination passports because what nina was just saying about the the integration into into visa systems and embassies that might be biometric data right now but if we make the wrong decisions in the next few days and weeks and months around vaccination and health records our health records will be traveling through all these systems before you know it when it comes to travel around the world mission creep i think is a thing around a lot of technological systems that we talk about and it's the one it's an odd thing to say because it's like you want to build a system for this the problem is once you have that system we don't believe you'll keep using it for this and it's a fairly easy thing to say because it's happened so frequently people start saying oh well since we have it we might as well use it for this but it's also fundamentally saying hey you say you want to use it for this we don't trust that in 10 years that's true like we don't trust you and that's a difficult argument to make because people will go oh why don't you trust me rather than saying you know what safeguards can we include how do we make sure this is purpose limited how do we do these things so mission creep is a persistent problem and and you see it in the vaccine passports debate people are saying And with all the COVID technologies, it's like, well, they're for this purpose, they're for COVID, and it's like, yeah, but you know, unless you have safeguards and sunset clauses and all sorts of other things, they won't stay being for COVID. They'll stay being here are the nice powers that we have, and we've gotten used to them, and we like them, and we think they're useful. Which is why you see increasingly in the UK lots of conversations around powers around protest and lots of other things, and it's because you know we're worried that if and when covid eases and things are no longer necessary for public health they will stick around because they're not necessary for public health anymore but we like them and isn't it nice that we have them and people say don't worry about it but but that's our, like we're a we're paid to worry about it b history suggests that someone's got to be worrying about it i think there was a c and i've forgotten it but i think the c is that um these systems have a way of maintaining momentum like there was a point in around 2006 when i thought okay you know what we've managed to turn the tide on biometrics and the governments that that, that have vast amounts of uh, resources and nothing better to do with it they tried it and it didn't really work and but they're going to keep it because they just you know they can't lose face but maybe we've won the battle but uh 
every now and then something happens and momentum is reestablished and some government minister says, oh, I've seen some really cool toys in country. Uh, why can't we, like, we should have them here. And that's essentially how India started moving towards biometrics in 2006, 2007. And then once India moved towards it, other countries said, well, that maybe we want to do that too. And funders of large systems across the world started to say, well, that look how well it's working in India. Let's deploy it elsewhere. But then I think I'd say about five years ago, uh, these systems got stuck in treacle again, where it just wasn't as sexy, wasn't as interesting. But then the goddamn UN resolution came up. And that's, um, and, and Fanula was talking about that earlier in this podcast. And so this resolution 2396 mandated every country on earth to collect biometric data in an effort to stem the threat of terrorism. So like it's 2001 all over again. And so governments are again given the motivation and in some cases are given the money to deploy these types of systems. And so, yeah, momentum is back. To break into your momentum, is it that non-specific? Because one of the things we see about mission creep and about the way that people like to use and take up these kind of fancy, sexy toys is they go here is a thing, how can we use it? Not here is a problem, how can we solve it? Like, is the resolution as non-specific as collect biometric data to stem the flow of terrorism, except we're not going to tell you how those two things are linked or how to do it or why to do it. It's just collect the data, terrorism go away maybe. <laughs> and you've described, like I'm, I'm, I'm getting flashbacks to post 9-11 international initiatives where we go to meetings or we would try to to do our advocacy against these institutions but you've described essentially how international institutions work they just they give mandates to say yes whereas there would be this global problem here's a one paragraph mandate to use these clever toys and we would say, well, hey, don't you think you want to add some safeguards and we will beg and beg and plead for safeguards so then they'll say, uh, well, if you're so motivated, dear country who wants to implement this, you may so wish to put a safeguard in place. And we would say, well, why don't you make the, the, the whole system contingent on the safeguards? And then these international institutions would say, well, that's not how we work, young man. Now go back to the corner that you crept out of and let us international institutions do as we do. And that's it. That's the problem. And that, that this is what we're seeing with, with all the international institutions whether it could be in pandemic response, counterterrorism, or just standards making, the World Bank as well. They say that we don't want to take away the sovereignty of countries and governments to decide how to implement things, which is code for, we will tell them to do the fun things, which is like deploy biometrics, but we'll leave it up to them as to how they protect people along the way, which is just Fucking frustrating. Sorry, I, I I know I've sworn twice in this podcast. <laughs> I think I've, I've passed the point. I, I think when, you, when we're talking about things that I've been working on for far too long, I'm allowed to swear in those podcasts. Is that okay, Caitlin? <laughs> I think that that can be the policy. I think we can set that policy. We can always add it as a question to the survey. Like, guys, <laughs> what do you think of Gus's swearing? Let's bring this back and talking about bringing things back. Let's welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Karen Weisberg. Karen is a lecturer at the University College London. Listeners may remember that we spoke to Karen back in the summer of 2020 about identity systems and registration in Kenya. 
And so I strongly recommend going back and listening to the podcast where we're speaking with Karen and with that extraordinary advocacy group and legal support group in Kenya called Haki Nashiria. Now, Karen's been researching the way that intrusive biometric technologies are being deployed in light of the UN's resolution, particularly at one of the world's most hotly contested borders and in a country still reeling from a protracted civil war that has struggled to come to terms with modern day piracy. So I've been looking at the case of Israel and Palestine in the case of Somalia, where biometrics have been deployed for a whole range of purposes, including counterterrorism, and trying to essentially learn lessons from those cases. It kind of drives me nuts that you have to raise the UN Security Council. Like this is the body of the UN that's supposed to be involved in waging war or not. And it seems that they're so bored that they decide to get involved in the field of counterterrorism. And they're so bored with counterterrorism, they get involved in the field of biometrics. It just feels like a waste of everybody's time and energy. But I don't want to pepper anything you may say, because for all we know, you may say that the use of biometrics in Israel and Palestine is so effective in dealing with terrorism. So on that note, how is facial recognition technology actually used in border crossings? Probably unsurprisingly, I do not have a lot of positive things to say about the use of biometrics and its deployment in the encounter terrorism and, and in the larger project of the global war on terror. And one of the really striking things that I learned in doing this research was that biometrics has recently been deployed in border crossings in places like the West Bank, which is part of the occupied territories in Israel. Checkpoints are essentially part of the Israeli government's matrix of control and really part and parcel of the military occupation in the West Bank. They have long controlled the movement of Palestinians both within the West Bank, but also between the West Bank and Israel, really maintaining a system of segregation. And what's happened is that in recent years, many of these checkpoints have been essentially upgraded. And we've seen the use of facial recognition technology. So what this essentially means is that Palestinians now will simply approach a turnstile, they'll scan their ID, they'll stare into a camera, their facial biometrics will be captured. And then within seconds, facial recognition software will authenticate their identity and then either allow them entry or not. But we've seen basically the automation of these checkpoints. I'm not entirely clear as to why they've chosen this form of technology. Like I'm old enough and I, I traveled to Israel long enough ago when I remember that there wasn't any of these borders to begin with and getting across was relatively easy of whatever there was. And then they built fences and they build walls and they build these turnstiles. And these are people to whom they can issue documentation as much as they want. What is the point of the biometric check itself within this highly controlled interface between two geographic and political entities? Yeah, it's a great question because, of course, there's a lot of low-tech aspects of the military occupation. And a lot of Palestinian activists, people like Nora Erekat, whose cousin was sadly killed recently at a checkpoint, have long discussed how damaging checkpoints have been for Palestinian communities in terms of dividing them for their ability to exercise their civil rights. And 
I would say that checkpoints for a very long time were really notorious, really emblematic, I think, of the kind of daily humiliations and frustrations that Palestinians had to face, especially because they were often notorious for very long queues, Palestinians often waiting for hours just to, you know, pass through one of these checkpoints. And one of the things that I think the introduction of facial recognition technologies has done is actually in some ways to humanize the checkpoints, to make them more, quote unquote, frictionless, to make the wait times much shorter, and also to to limit interactions between Palestinians moving through them and Israeli soldiers. And the company that has installed these facial recognition technology has even claimed that there's nothing unethical about the deployment of this technology. And if anything, we see similar technology deployed in increasingly in airports across the world. So I think what a lot of civil rights activists and human rights activists have argued is that this technology in a way helps to normalize what is really a military checkpoint. It makes it seem more like a kind of normal border crossing. It it humanizes it in a way. And and in that sense, there's a lot of, I think, risk that it, it essentially helps to maintain what is really an unsustainable situation of indefinite military occupation. I find that ridiculous in the sense that as with somebody with a Muslim last name, I can say no airport on this planet feels like a comfortable environment and no border point anywhere can be made more humane in that way. Now, just so we can understand the verification that is actually taking place, is it that they're verifying the identity of the person passing through the border? Because that's not a way of combating terrorism. That's a way of just saying, hey, do you have a right to access and do you not have a right to access? But unless they're doing facial recognition against some database of terrorists, or as we've discovered in previous podcasts, some ridiculous AI that says you look like a terrorist because your face has traits of a terrorist. What, what exactly is the security being gained here by the use of biometrics? Well, I think we should definitely call into question very heavily whether this actually does make anyone more secure. Uh, I think that a lot of military measures are conducted in Israel in the name of counterterrorism and security that don't actually serve that purpose. But you know, there are limits to what we know about the systems that are in place, but it seems that the technology both checks people against their ID to make sure they are the person on their ID, but also that there is a, a list, a watch list that that bars people from moving across the checkpoint. And it's estimated that upwards of 250,000 people are on this list. And of course, in the absence of any kind of democratic accountability, we don't know how and why people end up on this list, but it's yet one more technology that limits Palestinians' freedom of movement. And there's really no recourse when it comes to people who, for whatever reason, may end up on this list where they know they just simply cannot cross through the the checkpoints. How damaging is it not to be able to travel across? Because I know, you know, a limited amount, but in someone's day-to-day life, if they can't, like, what are the knock-on effects? It's hugely damaging. I think a lot of Palestinian activists point out that movement controls and segregated systems, which are enforced in a whole 
array of different mechanisms, not only through cutting edge technologies, but also through things like segregated roads, segregated railways, that they really divide up, you know, Palestinian territories, they divide up communities, they really just help to reinforce this kind of indefinite military occupation. Borders are already the least accountable places on the planet. It's been a while since I've been there, but those borders in particular with the occupied territories are probably the least accountable. Now, there's the question of, does the technology work and are there errors? But there's also the virtue of using technology, if you were an evil genius, is that accountability becomes even more problematic to trace between an error in the system, an error in the technology, an error in the database. And then there's the next stage, which is, once you have the technical infrastructure in place that used to just be turnstiles, but now is all these other things governed by software, a flip of a switch, a change of a code, an addition, a linking of new data into that 250,000 person database, all of a sudden you've disenfranchised even more people in an even more unaccountable and unclear way. Is that by design or are they hoping that this is going to clean up the system? I don't even know if that's my question. I'm just so frustrated by all of this. <laughs> it's it's really frustrating. And I think one of the ironies to the whole situation is there's quite a bit of quote unquote illegal crossing that takes place, which the Israeli security forces are completely aware of. They often allow either because there are undocumented migrant workers who they know pass into to Israel to work, or there are moments where Israeli security forces in the name of, you know, supposedly relieving pressure will allow Palestinians to move across borders and circumvent checkpoints. So the idea that this is being done in the name of security and that this is a kind of essential security measure, I think really needs to be called into question. A lot of this is feels performative. It feels part of Israel's kind of high-tech security apparatus. And it's very repressive, obviously, but the extent to which it actually solves any kind of security situation on the ground, I think is highly questionable. That's fascinating. It reminds me of a, like, we were one of the only organizations to come out against the U.S government starting its visit program where they started fingerprinting people upon entry in 2004. And I remember a couple of years after it first went in, the system had crashed, particularly access at LAX, Los Angeles airport. So in their obsession with making sure everybody went through this version of turnstiles, they kept people on the tarmac. They wouldn't let them deplane for four hours in some cases, just because they wanted to make sure that people had gone through that turnstile and been fingerprinted even when they weren't even sure if the system was working. And they had to admit a number of years later that they never actually verified the data. So there's a performance, certainly, and then there's an intentional uh, segregation between unclean and clean, but there's also just the, well, we're told to do this, so we're gonna do it kind of thing. And it just becomes a logic of its own. And that is the most cruel type of system. Absolutely, and I think this is a theme that kept popping up in my research is that biometric technologies very often do not work the way their proponents claim they do. They fail on multiple accounts all the time. Their you know, purported efficacy it just very often doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And yet we're constantly just seeing the, the kind of global 
proliferation of biometric technologies. And they're seen in many, I think, security circles as this sacrosanct technology that will solve all sorts of problems. And their very efficacy, I think, needs to be called into question. But there's also no surprise that they're being deployed first in border environments and airports and and they're used by police where none of the usual accountability measures are in place. And it's always first target at the other. Let's shift to Somalia, where this whole question of who is it targeting becomes part of the interesting question in its own right. So can you just give us a bit of a background on on the work that you've done around Somalia and the deployment of biometrics there? Yeah, so just a little bit of background on Somalia. So Somalia has been recovering from a very long, very protracted civil war that started in the late 80s, early 90s. I think it's a very common characteristic to hear Somalia described as a kind of failed state, which I don't think is an accurate portrayal of the country. I think even at the kind of height of the civil war, there were many regions of Somalia that remained stable, where there were state-like entities that were still governing. And now there is, you know, a government has been reinstated in Mogadishu, the Federal Republic of Somalia. But its ability to really exercise control over the region is quite limited. And there are various other kinds of players on the ground and actors on the ground that exercise, who who are governing in many respects. There's also a range of foreign and intergovernmental actors who often work in coordination with the federal government of Somalia, who engage in a lot of security operations on the ground, many of which involve biometrics. So we have entities like the U.S. Department of Defense or the U.N. Trust Fund for the Fight Against Piracy. And we also have a lot of humanitarian organizations that are also deploying biometrics, like the UNHCR, for example. So we're seeing biometrics being deployed for a whole range of reasons, military reasons, non-military reasons in Somalia. I think one of the most striking uses of biometrics is actually in anti-piracy operations off the coast of Somalia. Okay, so that's something that people do have a little bit more insight into because Tom Hanks did a movie about it. But uh, I don't remember biometrics being a part of that. So can you describe how that's actually being deployed? Sure. I I really dislike that movie, by the way. But um, unsurprisingly, not a very accurate portrayal of piracy and the reasons piracy emerged, which are probably beyond the scope of this podcast. But Piracy became a problem in the wake of the civil war off the coast of Somalia, and there was really a huge intergovernmental multinational effort to try to combat piracy, which became this really sensationalized issue in the media. And it quickly became clear that the international community really faced a number of challenges. Firstly, there was growing criticism that international naval forces were unable to really distinguish between who was a pirate and who was a fisherman. And Somali coastal communities were complaining that people were getting arrested who weren't necessarily pirates, but were being accused of piracy. And there were also just larger problems involving the difficulty of prosecuting 
suspected pirates. So firstly, there was debate as to where, what, which country people should be prosecuted, but also when people went to court, there often wasn't enough evidence to really prove intent and to really prove criminal wrongdoing. So this is where biometrics were introduced and biometrics became embraced as a kind of way to prove intent, to sort of identify people who were suspects. And it's really concerning. Um, So for example, the US Navy began to deploy biometrics as part of what they often refer to as catch and release tactics. So people who were suspected of being pirates, who may or may not have been, would be detained. If they had weapons, those would be confiscated and their biometrics would be taken. And basically entities like the US Navy, Interpol began compiling databases of fingerprints, of photographs, of other identifying details of people suspected to be Somali pirates and also began cross-checking people against other existing databases like the Department of Defense Automated Biometric Identification System. And there's a scholar named Katja Jacobson who writes really extensively on this. But the idea behind this was to kind of prove intent so that if international naval forces were to collect and store people's biometrics, people who were deemed suspicious, then eventually this might help to serve as evidence of intent, possibly in a courtroom, especially if someone was caught more than once or their biometrics were found on one of these watch lists. There's just so much to unpick there. Like first, a catch-release program, that's what you do to fish. You don't do it to human beings. And second, just because you're unfortunate to be caught in this net twice, that somehow, that tends to prove that the catching and the netting is the problem, but somehow it proves that the individual is the problem. It's hugely problematic. I mean, international waters are notoriously unregulated spaces. There have been all sorts of accusations of human rights abuses against suspected pirates at sea. And of course, I mean, naval forces basically have full discretion to determine who is someone who might be a suspect to take their biometrics. And there's just enormous scope for harm. There's enormous scope for discretion. There's very little oversight. There's just an incredibly blurry line between who's a fisherman, who's a pirate. It's very difficult to assess guilt under these circumstances. And there's also a much broader debate, which we probably don't have time to get into as to, you know, why piracy emerged in the first place and the international factors for that. And the reason why trying to combat it in this matter really doesn't get to the root causes. And in both of these examples we're going through, I keep on querying the momentum that goes behind these systems. So now it just becomes a practice in its own right. And you can never imagine de-escalating. You can't imagine removing these systems, let alone, uh, as you identify, trying to address the actual causes. No, 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 no. We're just going to pile on top the various technical systems because there's so many vendors out there and so many existing databases to plug these things into. It's a system with its own momentum. Absolutely. And I think you said this earlier, biometrics takes on a logic 
of its own. Another really interesting instance of this is in 2013, the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization began biometrically registering artisanal fishermen off the coast of Somalia. And part of the the intent of this program was to try to combat piracy by distinguishing between people who were supposedly legitimate fishermen and people who were pirates by essentially biometrically registering people who were deemed to be legitimate fishermen. I think very unsurprisingly, this program quickly became subject to all sorts of local power dynamics. Local fishing associations were playing a key role in determining who would be considered legitimate, who wasn't, and who would be considered ineligible. And it also meant that you know many people who had no involvement with piracy, simply weren't registered in the program and thus weren't given the same kind of benefits and freedom of movement, but also that people who were involved in piracy weren't able to kind of move into other kinds of livelihoods and, you know, get support and funding to move into less criminalized professions. So, I think the use of biometrics to try to neatly distinguish between who is a supposed pirate who is not has just been based on really, really dubious assumptions. Similarly, when I was working on biometrics in that region, 2007, 2008, I was brought in to talk about biometrics and to talk about how problematic biometrics were, like the fingerprinting process, the photographing process. And I kept on trying to get people to not focus on the fingerprinting and the, and the facial other than like looking at error rates and how ridiculous it is, but rather to understand that you're building something. There's, there's, there's a infrastructure that people will have to find a way to navigate and there'll be systems that emerge. And like, so the, the local elder is going to have even greater power in a system that's not questioned because it's technological and all these sorts of things. And this is just happening time and again. So I'm curious for you as somebody who researches biometrics and I'm using air quotes, how much of your work is actually about biometrics versus this, this new type of world we're building with almost thicker walls because they are technological and not because it's it involves ones and zeros but because it involves vendors it involves political momentum it involves technological solutionism i mean these are at the end of the day as much political systems as technical ones and they're about categorizing people they're about reinforcing systems of segregation determining who is free to travel who is not who is a suspected criminal who is a so-called legitimate fishermen. I mean, I think one theme that really came out in my research is how entangled biometric programs done in the name of counterterrorism, how entangled they are with broader movement controls and broader efforts to really regulate people's movements and really regulate people's access. And that is, that's deeply, deeply political. I'm not in this because of the tech. The tech is why I'm in this, you know? And these larger, broader questions, that's everything. And I still don't know how we disentangle. Like, I, I think going back to the US fingerprinting program, when it was first introduced, it was a bit of a shock. If it disappeared the next year, people would say, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. But now it's unimaginable. We would stop fingerprinting people at borders when it was radical 
back in 2004. And so in the same way, like even if we discover that actually people who fish have the same fingerprints as people who do piracy, or there might be a whole error in the Israeli database of 250,000 suspected terrorists, doesn't matter because the amount of counter momentum it would take to dismantle this entanglement you talk about, it's impossible. It's just impossible. So we're just going to continue. And at some point with its own weight, like maybe people will recognize it doesn't work as I've uncovered when we were working in Djibouti, like everybody knew the system wasn't working except for UNHCR themselves, but they're going to continue to spend money. And so it's all the wasted opportunity costs of things you could do to solve the goddamn problem. Caitlin, steal this, stop me. Is there any concern around data sharing and function creep? Because it's one thing to set up a system for border crossings points. So we've explained there are like significant concerns with that system. But then one thing we've repeatedly seen is they rarely stop with that one system. And when something's attached to something you can't change without, you know, serious surgical intervention, often those problems kind of get stuck to people. Absolutely. And I think one trend we've seen is also just growing interoperability between different biometric databases and biometric systems being cross-checked against watch lists. And it's really worrisome. We don't really know why someone might end up on an Interpol database or the Israeli government's watch list. And the more that these databases are increasingly interoperable, it just it poses increasing risks for people. Interpol is a great example. Like, and this is why I laugh at the UN Security Council and we should be laughing at Interpol. When I was growing up, Interpol was like a serious institution that was like, you know, they're the ones you could go to when you couldn't trust your local law enforcement. The deputy director of Interpol basically went missing because the Chinese government didn't like him. And ever since 9-11, we've been seeing how the Interpol list, even their most precious red list is so political as it is, you know? And so the idea that an already unaccountable system at a local level, operating at a border, which is a highly unaccountable environment, and in the case of Somalia, operated by armed forces of other countries who are even less accountable, and then the floodgates open for data sharing with international organizations who are also unaccountable. And when we have seen levels of accountability in the use of biometrics, say in the fingerprinting within the EU of migrants. And we've seen that that's led to self-harm where people are burning their fingers in order to change their fingerprints because what they really want is a different determination over their legal right to seek asylum and refuge, but they're being prevented because of a fingerprint. You know, and then so as a result, there was a change in policy because people recognize it's not a good thing that people are destroying their fingers and hurting themselves. But now we're even turning about on that policy because everybody's afraid of foreigners now. And so we're ramping up again. So even when there was a level of accountability and thoughtfulness, we turned away. But now we're, we're pivoting back into increasing the practice of this, even in areas where we're, there's mild accountability, let alone all these areas we've discussed today where there's absolutely no freaking accountability. And I just don't get, apart from us moaning about these institutions doing these ridiculous things and spending the ridiculous money, I don't get when they realize that this is not achieving anything. 
I just wanted to build on something you said, because I'm really worried about the, the growing ways in which biometrics are part of the EU's border externalization policies and the growing use of biometric databases along, for example, transit routes in Africa. We see a lot of like IOM and Frontex funded data sharing and biometric systems being deployed outside of Europe. And people forget that there's people have a right in international law to seek asylum. People have a right to freedom of movement. And there, as you said, there's really fundamental ways in which people are being denied very basic rights because of these systems and because of really, I would say, a fundamental sense that migrants and refugees are untrustworthy and thus their lives, their origins need to be somehow verified through biometric data. And it's very worrisome. that trend. That trend sucks. We see it more and more. I think it's because it's an easy political win for people to go migrants and asylum seekers and you'll often see them conflated, migrants and asylum seekers. So, you know, in language, migrant becomes to mean the people, you know, jumping off the boat, coming over the channel in the UK. And it doesn't mean, you know, the Australian hopping off the plane to come to university or start work in the UK so that you'll often start to see migration and asylum conflated and you'll start to see people saying asylum seekers by taking a dangerous route to the UK are jumping the queue or are you know doing something inherently untrustworthy illegal problematic and it's like everyone has a legal right to claim asylum um if i mean if we were just talking about law they've done nothing wrong for one thing and for another like the demonization is just so cruel like even if it wasn't claiming that people are criminal that aren't even if it wasn't denying them access to their human rights it would still be incredibly cruel and the eu are doing it all over the place we have a whole project on border externalization and EU handing out money for these kind of technologies in countries to stop people from getting from those countries to the EU. And it sucks. And we've done a podcast about it called, uh, I think it's called EU Exporting Surveillance with Eden, who's our advocacy director. Yes, I'm getting the nod. He's the advocacy, is our advocacy director and he runs this project. But it is a kind of, incredibly frustrating these people are untrustworthy let's subject them to all the surveillance technology that soon we want to you know use in more places and that's where i want to be a little um a little controversial which is at the beginning of this podcast uh, i was doing the whole old man routine saying i remember a day when before 9 11 fingerprinting was only done to criminals and so we were hoping to stoke the middle class outrage of being fingerprinted, saying, hey, you, I, I'm not a criminal, why should I be fingerprinted? Hoping that that would cause critical reflection about the deployment of biometrics post 9-11. And it feels like we're being set up to do that again and to say, 
hey, why am I being biometrically scanned? I'm not a dirty asylum seeker. And we almost like need that other in order to, to be offended that we're being treated the way that our governments treat anybody they can treat in this way if they take away their rights, which is what they're trying to do systematically to everybody anyways, ultimately, in order to ease our processing through whatever systems they've been building that started up the border, that started over there. It sucks, and people let them do it because what it's a trend. It's a pattern you see throughout history. It's first off, dehumanize them. They're not really people. You don't really have to think about them as people who've been something through something awful, who have families, who have people who love them, some of which are already here that they're trying to meet up with and join, like which you see all the time with um, kind of unaccompanied migrants on the US border, who frequently have families that they're trying to get to who aren't allowed to go join them. First off, dehumanise them. Second off, you can do what you want to them then because the outrage isn't there. And, you know, migrant groups and migrants' rights groups all over the place are trying to do the same thing, which say these are people and we don't. And the problem is it's so difficult to explain to people (laughs) that you should care about other people. And it's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And it's but it's the thing with all of the biometric stuff is it's a it's a technology that's looking for a problem. Like it's not we have a problem. Here's how we solve that problem. It's you know, we've created this system that's designed specifically for this thing and it works really well and we can prove that it works really well. It's here is this technology and we're trying to sell it to you and we're trying to work out all the best ways in which we can deploy it because it's a cool technology and it will make us money. And it's so irritating because often it doesn't work. Like it just doesn't work. It doesn't work well. When it doesn't work well, it puts people at risk. And also, even if it did work well, it would still be a horrific technology because of the invasion of privacy it involves, because of the because of the nightmare kind of surveillance scenario, which is becoming increasingly not a nightmare. It's becoming reality. And its use in counter-terror is a problem because of all of the reasons we've outlined in this podcast. And it's a difficult one to argue against because people are scared of terrorists. Like, and that's not an unreasonable fear. Like the comparison people often make is to other forms of, you know, you're more likely to die by this. You're more likely to die by this. And that's true. But you can see why people are more worried about terrorists, you know, or in America, kind of, we're recording this after two mass shootings in two weeks in America. So in America, you know, gun violence. But you can see why that is the scary thing. And you can see why people want the reassurance and the safety. But the problem is people also want to live their lives and they also want human rights and they also want assurance and safety as they go to the shops and as they live. And that's true as true in Iraq and Afghanistan as it is in the US. And it's as true in you know Palestine and Somalia as anywhere else. And because those people are over there, you know, for some reason we're okay with I say for some reason, for all the obvious reasons, we're okay with distributing this technology and using this technology on those people. And it sucks and it's not fair. (laughs) But again, it's so difficult to explain to people. You should care about other people. (laughs) You should care about those people as much as you care about next door. When the U.S. deployed the U.S. visit system, well, in its earliest forms, it started fingerprinting visitors to the U.S. from a number of select countries. And Brazil was one of those countries. And so the Brazilian government decided to retaliate by requiring the fingerprinting of Americans visiting Brazil. And I remember there was a press conference where this was raised and Colin Powell was the secretary of state at the time. 
And uh, when the question was raised, like, how do you feel about the Brazilian government fingerprinting Americans? He was he was outraged. <laughs> and it's like, we're going to talk to them about that. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. So fingerprinting is only okay at borders when you do it to others. And you never mm -hmm. thought that someday you might be an other to some other place you might want to go to. We don't trust them, but they should trust us. It's unacceptable that it's they don't like trust us. It's like the world's us. worst form of fiction, you know? <laughs> like, how, how can an author be so stupid to not imagine this? But lo and behold, this is the world we're in. Yet equally, this is a fantasy world we're talking about because none of us are traveling. And uh, <laughs> we're still under lockdown in the United Kingdom. And we're all trying to imagine when that day will come that, oh, if only I could get a ticket to travel on a plane and well before i travel on that plane be treated like a criminal at an airport and be interrogated and searched and in most cases body scanned which is the equivalent of a digital well a strip search board on an airplane land in a country and be treated like a criminal and be fingerprinted and face scanned and whatever else they want to do just so i can go and see my loved ones for the first time in a very long time so how about we end on that note yeah that's almost optimistic <laughs> <laughs> Almost. You can support PI in uncovering more dodgy uses of tech around the world by going to support.privacyinternational.org. And you can like and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. It's also available on our website at privacyinternational.org. And one last time, we'd like to remind you that we have a survey that we would love it if you would fill out so we can find out what you like about our podcast, what you don't like about our podcast, if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. <laughs> and the URL for that survey is pvcy.org slash tpsurvey. The eagle-eyed amongst you will notice that pvcy.org is like a cool, youthful way of spelling privacy because it doesn't have any vowels or the letter R, which for some reason we've taken against. And we're um, ignoring the fact that Y is sometimes a vowel. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's the alarm that says I have to go pick up my son at school. Ah, okay, we better finish then. Yes. Music courtesy of CVO. Podcast produced by Max Manel for Bureaucracy International. Thank you for listening. Peace.